I've been in the anti-fraud space for well over a decade, working with hundreds of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And I'm on my own again. (laughs) Brett and I are both insanely busy and seem to be traveling at opposite schedules at the moment. While we had plans to record over the weekend, and I even posted a picture on LinkedIn because before we recorded, because I thought that there wasn't going to be an issue, I was at my family beach house about an hour and a half west of Seattle. There's Wi-Fi, and I even tried plugging straight into the router. Still, it just wasn't enough upload for Skype to work, and that's what Brett and I use to record. That was on me that we weren't able to do it this weekend, and then Monday morning, Brett texted me. We were planning on recording this morning. Brett texted me uh, just a little bit ago and said that he has to get on the road earlier than he was planning on because his client that he's speaking for today needed him earlier. I was just at a major fraud conference for online fraud and payments as well last week, which is partially why my voice is a little bit different. Spend five days in Vegas talking for about 18 hours a day, the dry air, and your voice still sound like this. (laughs) And it's actually a hundred times better than it was when I first got here. This is not the first year I have left my voice in Vegas. And to anyone that knows me, probably not surprised that I talked so much I lost my voice. It was so awesome to see everyone. So I will dive into some of the highlights and observations that I had from that event pretty soon. I just wanted to kind of throw out a couple of announcements. We are doing the contest one more week for sharing online broadcast posts, liking or following us on Facebook, which I feel like I've said this the last three weeks in a row, but I just need to get back up on the horse and start posting on Facebook again. I really haven't been doing as much on Facebook lately because mostly it's been LinkedIn and work. I'm still catching up from having pneumonia like five weeks ago. So also posting a review on iTunes. Really appreciate everyone that's done it so far. And I'm keeping tallies. Thank you so much. Even if I haven't had a chance to thank you personally, know that we really appreciate it. And it's working. And Really, we're just so humbled by the success. We have several thousand people listen to us every month, but we know that there's a lot of people that haven't yet heard about the online broadcast. So that's the point of the contest. And in case you haven't heard, what you will win is that we will select five people to get a one hour consulting with both Brett and I. And that's for both merchants and vendors as well. We have a lot of observations in the vendor space too that we can provide. One more note, it is April 5th is the end of early bird registration pricing for CMP Expo. As you know, Online Frogcast is going to be doing our very first live recording there. We have a lot of really fun stuff planned, fun segments, audience engagement. Additionally, anyone who uses our promo code FCAST, (laughs) you receive 10% off as well as you will receive a Online Frogcast t-shirt before the expo. Um, We are working on them now and pretty excited about that because I personally think that there's not enough fun, dorky, nerdy t-shirts in our industry and that we can always use more. (laughs) 
<laughs> there was only a t-shirt done by a vendor several years ago and on the back it said virtual crime fighter and I wore that as much as I could however not as much in public because I don't think they really thought about designing it for women I still wore it with pride so that's kind of what we're going with so all of that to be said as long as you register before April 5th with the 10% off promo code, I believe it brings registration down to right around $750 to $800. I know it's less than $800. That's an insanely good deal. And i talking to a lot of merchants this week who attend CMP as well as several other conferences. They say that they really go to CMP to connect with other merchants and with their peers in like a one-on-one -on -one basis because I've been very grateful to be able to create programs for merchants for CMP that I've always thought would be very beneficial and helpful to make it feel small. Make it feel so that you can really get information from your peers and the peers that you need, especially your competition. So this podcast is very separate from CMP. I know that I work on the agenda, educational, but really at the end of the day, because I just am so passionate about merchants learning from other merchants, that's why I want you guys there. And selfishly, because we would love to have a full audience, uh, which we will have, but we'd love to have some friendly faces in the audience for our first live recording. I'm probably a lot more nervous about it than Brett because he does this all the time. Maybe not a live recording for the podcast, but he speaks on stage all the time. One more note for merchants. There's also a deal that if you contact me directly, I can loop you in on being able to buy three registrations and get three registrations free. The 10% off won't work, but that's a really good deal. So you can bring six of your team members for less than $2,500 or right around that. Sorry, I haven't done the math on the calculator. So don't totally quote me, but I know it's like $2,500, $2,600. That's awesome especially for those of you in San Francisco. So CMP Expo is San Francisco, May 21st to the 23rd. Brett and I will be speaking the 22nd. It's the week before Memorial Day, so maybe plan a family getaway as well right after that. All right, so that's all my housekeeping. Um, I always feel like it's just so much more boring without Brett, so that's why we try really hard not to do these solo podcasts, but it got to a point where it was like, ah, we need to do something, and I'm the best you're going to get at the point at this moment, so sorry about that. <laughs> but I will say, last week was so cool to be able to see so many of you guys. Um, I'm not going to name names because you know I don't do that. You know who you are, who I got to speak with, and there were a lot of people I didn't get to see, um, and that was a super a big bummer but you know when you have 1600 people in a small space it's kind of hard to find everybody so actually it was kind of a big space but it's kind of hard to find everyone so and I never ever ever get to talk to anyone as long as I want to right like I would love to just sit down with each and every person there for an hour and find out like what's going on how can I help what you know what do you need most and all that other stuff and um, I gotta have a lot of that but never as much as I want but it was so humbling, you guys, like those of you who came up, just complimented the podcast or me. I'm not somebody who needs to be in the spotlight. In fact, it makes me pretty uncomfortable. Like, I'm very grateful that you guys send notes on LinkedIn and, and it makes my day every time, but it doesn't really soak in. It doesn't go to my head. And I think that to a point, that's to a fault. But yes, last week was a good reminder that this is really helping you guys and just, you know, helping you feel connected to the industry, helping you learn a few things here and there, helping you have something fun to listen to while you're working, whether that's manual reviews or reporting or whatever it is. So I was really grateful to hear that in person. And I just really appreciate 
all of you that made a point to say those things. I also heard some great feedback on how we can improve. We'll be going back to kind of our fraud roots a little bit more um, in future episodes about really kind of tactical stuff and strategy stuff as well. And that came from you guys, as well as several other things that kind of throughout the next few weeks we'll be introducing, as well as topics. I joked with people there that, with some of you actually there, that if I don't get topics from you guys to know what's on the front lines, I'm just going to let Brett rant about his favorite rant of the day. So if you don't want to always hear that, (laughs) let me know what you want to hear. I have some great ones that are coming up, especially around social engineering and calling fraudsters, when's the right time to call on an order, what kinds of questions you ask. We'll be going over that next week. That was something we were going to do, or in the next two weeks, I should say. That was something we were going to talk about today, but I don't want to do that without Brett on the line. He has so much knowledge about calling fraudsters and, and social engineering and stuff that that would just be giving you guys a disservice if we did that. So I decided to kind of do an MRC recap. However, it's going to be from my perspective and observation about the industry. And I'd love to hear if this is consistent with some of the stuff that you guys thought of. I have to give a caveat. I was in a lot of meetings last week, which is partially why I didn't get to meet all of you. So I missed out on all the sessions, which is like my favorite part about going to a conference. The main objective of me going to this last week was to um, help my client, the fintech company that I've referred to before, meet a lot of large merchants. Without giving too much detail, my client is creating a two-way data connection between merchants and issuers. And it's something I'm very, I believe in a lot. And the first problem that they're solving is card updating and providing information directly from the issuer because they're the ones that know when the card has been updated. It's, I'm not going to say how many issuers on the line. However, I would say most, if not all of the major issuers in the U.S. have all contracted my client to do this because they want a direct connection to merchants, which honestly surprised me at first when they approached me. For many, many years, I used to think that the issuers and networks were best buddies and that the merchants were kind of left on their own. I think that now that networks are no longer nonprofits, which fun fact, they were a nonprofit when I started in this industry, that they have their own interests in, in heart. And that's okay. I'm certainly not bad mouthing them at all. But I just think that collaboration and working across all the different channels in the ecosystem, which includes networks and includes issuers, is very, very important. We're not changing the payment processing at all. It still all goes through the networks. It's just more on a data level. What I'm really excited about as well is is the next version of this because it'll be a living, breathing product that will continue to offer services that'll help merchants and issuers solve for fraud and payments. And the next version provides things in fraud that we haven't ever had access to from a data perspective. I can't give a lot of details for a lot of reasons on a public space like this. If you have questions, definitely reach out to me, but it's very different than the current products that are offered. And it's currently not a a competitor of those. So it's more on the pre-transaction level and not the post-transaction, if that makes sense. So that was why I was in a lot of meetings. I just felt like it would be helpful to give you context. I did have a couple meetings about chargeback consulting as well, and those were awesome and fun. But for the most part, it was for this client. And it was just awesome really to connect with merchants one-on-one in that way and to get the buzz around what I've been working on for the last seven or eight months to really see validation of people going, wow, this is awesome. This could really change the game. That's 
why I work on it, right? I tell you guys all the time, the things I work on are the things that I feel like are going to impact this industry. It's really cheesy, but it's an industry that I love. And I was talking to one of our listeners a few weeks ago and told him that I jokingly have referred to myself as a socialist for capitalism. (laughs) So let me explain. I've always had this passion and heart to help people. And I actually went to college or when I was in college, I majored in sociology. My plan was either to be a teacher or a social worker, just because I have a heart to help people. And so I think that that's whenever I'm selecting a project, and I'm super lucky that I can be selective about projects. I'm looking at what's going to impact my industry and what's going to help people the most. So that's why I work with CMP Expo on the education agenda, because educating the industry is important. Connecting you with each other is really important. That's why I'm working with this fintech company, because they're going to be connecting merchants and issuers together. And from a, only from a data perspective, but there's a lot that can be done there. And I'm really excited about what it'll do for you know, reducing declines, increasing customer engagement, and all of the other things that, you know, across from end to end, from the cardholder, you know, working with the bank all the way to the cardholder making a purchase at the merchant. That's important to me. Working with merchants one-on-one on chargebacks, also important. Doing this podcast, it all goes underneath the same umbrella of being a social worker for capitalism. And the reason why I kind of laugh about that is because I also know that you know, while my motivation is to help people and make a difference, I'm very aware that what I'm actually doing is helping a lot of, you know, large and small online companies save money and make more money. And that's okay. That's, you know, I, I live in a capitalist country, but doing it in a smart way that really keeps the customer in mind and isn't taking advantage of the customer, I think is important. So all of that to say, that's why I'm working with them. But it was really interesting to me. I'm starting to see a pattern in this industry where, we're not the only ones working on uh, or realizing, I shouldn't say it's very different. Everyone's taking a look at it in a very different way and different services and things like that. But I'm starting to see a, a pattern and a trend of other entities in the space realizing that issuers and merchants should be connected with each other. And that makes me really happy. I, When I first started working on this project, I didn't know anyone else was doing it. But at the same time, I think we're all doing it in very different ways. And it's up to each of you. I mean, going back to capitalism, right? Like giving you an option to choose if you want to enroll in all of them, if you want to enroll in one of them, they're all doing it in a different way. And they're with different entities. But I think if you look at the last couple huge acquisitions in the last two weeks that that's where the industry is headed, right? So we saw MasterCard purchase Ethica. Um, Ethica does work directly with issuers, but in a post-transaction basis. MasterCard works with both issuers and merchants in all phases of the ecosystem. So I would imagine, and I've seen some indications of that in the public space, that, that, that they are headed in a way of continuing to evolve that relationship between merchants and issuers in the way that they've been doing. Um, and additionally, FIS purchased WorldPay for $43 billion last week. I never thought that we'd come to a spot in our industry where it was like sexy to <laughs> invest in these companies but or acquire them. But it's awesome. But it's also, you know, consolidation can cause some other issues as well. But I'm not going to go down that path. But I think that it's important to... To notice that, you know, FIS is an issuing entity, more or less, and WorldPay has been an acquiring entity, more or less. So you combine the two, and you're now seeing end-to-end all that data. I can't begin to suspect what 
all is going to happen with that. I just wanted to point out the fact that I'm just seeing a pattern that some of these acquisitions are along the same tracks as what I'm working on with this company, this client of mine as well. And I hope that that's exciting to you guys that finally, after years and years and years of saying, I want to work with issuers and how come only the biggest companies in the world get to pick up the phone and call them on declines or fraud issues or chargebacks or anything like that. There's finally some movement in that direction in more than one way. So I may have missed a lot of sessions, but I still had a lot of conversations. And I think that there's some things that can be gleaned from that. So one of the biggest things I kind of wanted to mention and highlight is just how many more women there were this year than I've ever seen before at a frog conference. I can't tell you how happy that makes me. I saw a few of the women that I remember being at the very first MRC conference I went to in 2009. And I asked them, okay, I can only get up to six women that I remember being there, female merchants, because I don't really remember who was a vendor at the time. Who else was there? And between four of us, I think three or uh, I had the conversation with three of them and then me. Yeah. So four of us, we got up to eight names total of female merchants that we remember being there. Now, even if we only remembered half of the women that were there, that's 16 women. And I believe there were around 250 to 300 attendees at that time. And that was 10 years ago. So it's incredible to see how many more women there are in the industry, especially younger women. It's like a new generation of fraud fighters all across the board. But I just I saw this light in a few women's eyes that I especially like it was their first conference or first time speaking. And they were in their you know mid to late 20s. It just reminded me so much of myself 10 years ago, and it makes me excited. And for those men that are listening, they're saying like, why does it matter if there's a lot of women? It's not just because, oh, I want to see more people like me. It's because I truly believe that in this emerging industry that we're in, it's really important to have different perspectives, whether that's gender, nationality, culture, just different, you know, upbringings, different ways of thinking of things, because we're all kind of recreating the wheel, right? Or reinventing the wheel. And we're all trying to figure out the best ways of doing things. And the best people I've seen in the industry be able to do that in a great way have had a different perspective, whether that's, oh, I came from the issuing side, now I'm on the merchant side. Or for me, it was I came from the acquiring side, now I'm on the merchant side. Or it's just, you know, I'm a female and I think about things differently than a male or whatever it is. And I just think it's really important that we have an even playing field. And I believe that we as an industry and we as a culture have come a long way in the last 10 years, um, 14 years since I've been in it. That's all I can speak to. But we have a long way to go, guys. I mean, I can't tell you how many times even in meetings or just in conversations where if there's two men and I'm the only woman, the two men just start talking to each other. And I'm just kind of sitting there like, oh, I'm just feel like a 12 year old little girl that knows it's nothing. Or I'm spoken to like that. Or I'm not invited to meetings or I'm, you know, something's explained to me that (laughs) I'm like, I'm, I'm aware of that. I can't tell you how many times a man who's been in the industry for maybe three or four years and has only worked for one merchant is telling me how to do something. And I'm not super egotistical. It's not like I think I know everything, but come on. Like, I I know a few things. I've been around. And I think that that has to go with our own preconceived notions and, and the things that we were taught. I mean, I'm not expecting everyone to just wake up and be like, okay, it's 2019. So everything I learned about 
you know, men and women's roles when I was a kid in the 80s doesn't exist anymore. I'm not saying that, but like, you know, I would love to see a little more awareness. It was nice to see more female speakers in a conference. You guys probably know that I try to get as close to 50-50 female male representation as I can on the CMP agenda. And I know that that was important to the conference committee at the MRC this year as well. And kudos to you guys because it was awesome. Additionally, I heard of the funny, well, I heard a few anecdotes speaking with females that have been in the industry that I thought it was important to share one hilarious to me and then the other is just frustrating so maybe i'll start with the frustrating one so we can end on a good note one of the women that has been in the industry much longer than i have more on the payment side than the fraud side but she hired me for one of my positions in my life and really was a pioneer in this space uh, for a female she's at a company a newer company for her but she's been there a little over a year and there are two people on her staff that were in charge of her her responsibilities before she got there. I mean, because there really wasn't anyone else. But they haven't ever been in payments or fraud at any other company. And she is brilliant, especially when it comes to a specific part of payment processing. And I'm not going to give too many details because <laughs> there weren't that many women that started before me. So you narrow it down pretty easily. But you know, she, when she provides like strategy, it's very best practice. It's very based on experience. It's, she knows what she's talking about because she's done it at, you know, four other companies before. And unfortunately the, the men that she works with just completely try to disparage her and say, she doesn't know what she's talking about, or they call her strategies, hypothesis, or they ask her to go out and get validation that she's right in a very demeaning way. And some of that is cultural because some some of the men in our industry come from other cultures and other countries. And it's something I've really had to be aware of lately. In one of my experiences recently, I, I've been talked down to quite a bit. And it's only because I'm a woman and there's no other reason why. And this is a company that's paying me for my expertise. And I just have to remind myself, okay, they were born in a different country and females have different roles there. And so I I have to, that doesn't mean I'm giving them a full pass. It just gives me some perspective that it's not just me and that this is deeper than, you know, just a conversation. So I know that that's a factor, but it's just messing with her head because not only that, but she's having the stereotypical situation where she'll say something in a meeting and then five minutes later, one of the men will say something in the meeting and everyone will be like, oh, that's a great idea. And she's like, I literally just said that. I know that women listening are like, yes, preach. And men are like, eh, that doesn't really happen, but it does. I've even had very well-known men in our industry or in adjacent industries be extremely inappropriate with me to the point where I felt really uncomfortable, especially at conferences when alcohol is involved. Now I have guy friends who joke around and stuff. That doesn't bug me. I am not a prude for God's sake. I've pretty much been everyone's little sister for, you know, my whole life. But there's a line and that line has been crossed a few times. Some by people that a lot of people respect. And and so that's why I don't, you know, I don't make waves and call people out, but I do keep my distance from them. And if they're in a position where, you know, they may be hired to speak at events, I choose not to hire them at my events because not only for how they treated me, but because I know they've done this to other women and I don't want that to happen there to the women that attend any of the events I coordinate. So not to spend too much time on that, but just... You know, or when we're at events and we see, you know, five men on a panel, like, was there not any women that 
could know that better. Or maybe it's a case that a lot of us, I'm, I was going to say a lot of you, but I was in this camp for a long time too, don't feel like we have anything to say or any authority to say it. And I always tell people, if you've been in this industry for more than three years, you have stories to tell. You have information that other people can learn from. It, your gender shouldn't matter. And so I, I always encourage women to speak. And it's so fun because there's one woman in particular, and you know I'm talking about you because you called me out for talking about you on previous podcasts, but that's just because I love you and it's all always nice or, you know, as a learning experience. And it, it is always nice though. I've never said anything mean. She was so terrified to speak at an event and I convinced her to speak on a panel three years ago at CMP. And then the next year she's like, okay, I want to challenge myself. That was fun. I want to challenge myself. I'm going to do a presentation on my own with slides. Now, this girl is being asked to be on conferences all over the place and doing new presentations for each one and is just a kick-ass female. And I'm so proud of her. And I have seen that with several other women as well. And I love helping women in that way. For whatever reason, I don't really have to convince men that you guys have something to tell. That's not a bad thing. I love that too. It's just, I think we all need to catch up. <laughs> so one more note on all of this that is kind of more on the funny side. So, you know, there's been a term going around a lot, which is mansplaining. And a lot, some people probably rolled their eyes, but it's a thing <laughs> for those of us women that have moved up in our career quite a bit. I didn't really see any of this until like the last four or five years of my career. So, you know, when I was like an analyst, senior analyst, manager, I didn't really experience a lot of this. But the higher up I go, the more I'm like, geez, Louise, my gender really does matter a lot. Another uh, listener was telling me last week that she was in an uh, event that was talking, it was with you know men and women, but they were talking about women entering tech and being part of it. And somebody asked the question to, oh, so sorry, I should go back. Mansplaining to anyone that doesn't know is when it's the term for when a man feels like he needs to explain something to a woman. Usually it's something that the woman already knows in kind of simplistic format. Like you would explain something to your 10-year-old. Like you would explain politics to your 10-year-old. You know, maybe they understand the general part or they, they get it. They already know, but you're you're kind of dumbing it down a little bit. And I think it's also kind of offensive because it feels like you're making the assumption that the person that you're talking to doesn't know the answer. Rather than asking them like, oh, do you know what that is? Or something like that. That would be less offensive than, well, let me tell you how this works, which is exactly how somebody told me something a few weeks ago. And I had to really, really <laughs> hold myself back because I wanted to punch them in the face, but I had to restrain myself. So all that to say that a listener was telling me that she was at an event with men and women at a tech conference, and it wasn't necessarily in fraud or payments, but it was adjacent. And there was a woman on the panel talking about mansplaining and somebody asked her, well, what, how do you define that? And a man in the audience stood up and he defined mansplaining for her. Now, does anyone else not see the irony there? <laughs> or does anyone, does anyone not see the irony there is what I should say, that a question is asked of a woman, what is mansplaining? And a man gets up and explains what mansplaining is. This is literally mansplaining the man, <laughs> mansplaining. Sorry, I just, I found it really funny and I got a good laugh. But the reason I'm bringing all of this up on the podcast is just because I think that as more and more women join this industry, as you hire more women, as you go to more conferences and see more women, just be aware of this stuff, that it does exist. I think for a long time, I thought it was a cop out that women would say, oh, it's because I'm a woman. And really it was because of their skill. But like I said, the further up I get, the more I'm seeing this just so clearly. 
And there's really no other explanation for why I would be talked to like a five-year-old than gender bias. So, and I know if it's happening to me, it's happening to so many other people. And it was kind of a crazy thing for me to realize that it was happening to someone that's been in the industry longer than me even. It was validating in a way like, okay, it's not just me. But then again, it was like, oh my gosh, that's really bad if it's happening to you because you've been in this industry for 20 years and you know everything. How can anyone assume you don't, especially someone that's never worked in that industry anywhere else? So anyway, that is my own rant. I guess that it's Carice's rant. This is what happens when I have half an hour notice to pull together an outline. So I really apologize, guys, but I hope that was helpful to some of you. Other things that I observed and noticed through conversations is that merchants are really looking to fine tune your strategies versus kind of, you know, having a hammer, right? So what I mean by that is 10 years ago when I first went to my frog, my first frog conference, it was all about stopping fraud, stopping fraud, reducing chargebacks, you know, all of that stuff. It was like going at your sales with a hammer. Now I feel like it's going at your sales with more precision, tools and instruments like a scalpel and trying to find those bad orders without impacting your good customers. There's also just a lot more of, and we kind of talked about this a little bit last week on trust, but there's a lot more focus on gaining and and keeping customers trust and keeping them safe, especially in the marketplace. So those things never really were a concern at first. It was all about just stopping fraud. As technology has gotten more and more better at finding fraud, as those of us, you know, have now, some of us have decade, uh, over a decade of experience. Now I feel like there's an evolution. That's not to say that every single merchant is using a scalpel right now, but I would say overwhelmingly, it's more of a scalpel approach than a hammer approach. And it's focusing more on those good sales, the sales that actually pay your paycheck than just the bad sales. And I think that that's an interesting evolution in the industry, looking at those things. And I, you know, like I said, the technology that's available is so much more precise as well. But with all of that said, I have to say that I, and I'm just flipping over my page because I I know that I put this somewhere else. Fraud prevention technology is changing so rapidly, which is why I think that we're able to see these focuses. That's also why we're seeing so much fraud happen at call centers because online fraud detection has really improved in the last like three, four years. But what's also happening is it's changing so rapidly that it's making some brands kind of obsolete. And those are brands, some brands that were the top dogs five years ago have for various reasons not improved their technology. I think that they kind of got used to being top of the hill and having the biggest companies and, you know, really being the top solutions in the industry. And they may not be improving as rapidly as the new technology coming on board. So I think that a few things out of that one is if you're using fraud technology that you used three, four, five, six, seven years ago, It might be a good idea. Okay, it is a good idea to see what else is out there, see what new solutions there are. And that's not to say that every single fraud provider that was around five years ago is obsolete. I am not saying that at all. What I am saying is that there are a few that I've noticed that are not providing as much results as their competitors. And that's because fraudsters have really adapted to rules-based technology. They've adapted to a lot of the fraud solutions that were out five years ago. Just like the tools that I saw being at the top five years ago are now not really offering as much. Not all of them are offering as much. That might be the same to say for the ones that are really kicking, you know, 
kicking butt right now and acquiring a lot of people and really having a lot of great luck with machine learning, AI, and all artificial intelligence and all the other things, you know, behavior biometrics, human biometrics, all of those different areas. I guess the whole point of me saying all this is that we need fraud technology services to be changing and adapting as quickly as the fraudsters are. And I, that's just something to say to all fraud technology companies. Like it's very important. Companies are relying on you. And what I'm seeing happen now is that companies that were working with, with those providers are now looking elsewhere. And those providers may or may not know that. But it's also creating a lot of fear because a lot of you know venture capital funds or private equity funds have been pumped into a lot of companies. And that creates a sense of desperation and fear. I've heard some pretty crazy horror stories from merchants this week about either their the companies that they're working with and kind of being gaslit and also threatened and spoken to badly if they're thinking about leaving, but all, you know, being told things like you're the only company that's experiencing that when they aren't because I know of at least 20 or 30 they're experiencing the same thing that have all told me the same thing. Or their, you know, just desperation or anger or fear. The other thing that I heard a lot about was just sales reps being extremely inappropriate. And also, I just don't think that they fully understand the best way to market and sell to merchants. I'm actually going to be doing a bonus episode on this topic, specifically for vendors pretty soon. And it was actually at the request of several merchants last week, because I know that I have a platform where I can, you know, anonymize the merchant feedback, but get the message out. And I know that there's a lot of vendors that listen to us. And I'm grateful that you do because you're an important part of the ecosystem. I never want you to feel like we're bashing you. It's more like we're providing you with really good business intelligence information that you can choose to act on or not. But we're trying to help. At least I can speak from my perspective. I know that Brett a few weeks ago said kill all the vendors as a New Year's resolution. He did qualify that and explained where he was coming from. But (laughs) I know, but I'm the nice one. I'm the one that that knows that you guys are important. And he knows you guys are important too. I'm, I'm just teasing because he can't respond. So I will be diving into that more for as more like a one-on-one for sales reps and account managers on how to really service the merchants out there in the right way and sell to them the right way. And there are ways to sell to them without being extremely pushy and disrespectful of boundaries. And I will go into that. The other thing to know on this point of fraud prevention technology is just changing so rapidly is that it's really, I hear from a lot of merchants that think that all fraud providers are created equal. And that's just not the case. Each fraud provider, I believe, is better at providing their services for specific verticals. I don't think that there's any provider that is the best for every single vertical out there or price point or business model or any of those other things. A recurring digital goods company is going to have completely different needs than a single transaction physical goods company. And even within the digital space, gaming and ticketing, while they're similar, they're different. So all those different things. So there's not one size fits all for anyone. At the same time, it's also the fact that if you have been using the same tool for three, four, five, six, seven years, and you're seeing, wow, our false positives are going up and our manual review rates are going up. And then you come, hypothetically, you come to me and say, okay, I'm really hoping when I go to CMP Expo that I learn about false positives and manual reviews. Absolutely. But if you don't get a new technology, 
that may not change. You might be able to move the needle a little bit with some best practices and processes, but there are some technologies that have higher manual reviews and false positives than, than others. And that's just the way it is. And I think it's just really important for you guys to know that as you start to think about things like that. Conferences are a great time to poke your head out and see what's new. That's kind of, you know, where all of that is coming from. Also, in having conversations with fraud managers, I was just reminded that there's a very little baseline from one fraud manager or director to the next. There's just lots of inconsistencies based on experience, ability to retain information, ability to think outside the box. I've met some fraud managers, we'll just use fraud managers, but I mean, I'm talking about directors and all of the above, that have been in the industry for eight years and they have less knowledge on strategy and what tool for which and all this other stuff when they go into a new company than somebody who's maybe been in fraud for two or three years and has the ability to retain information and has a hunger for knowledge and thinks in a different way. It was just kind of, in all my conversations, I was just reminded that everybody is on a different path. It's not like, okay, we all graduated and got our MBA and so we're all on equal footing. No, there is really no standardized education for online fraud prevention or chargeback management. We're all in a different place. And I just think that that's good to know. I, I would say it can be frustrating at times because it can also be frustrating for merchants that are hiring who are looking at a resume that's super impressive. And then once they hire somebody, they can't deliver. And, and that might be because they don't retain information or they rely on other people too much and or they only knew the vertical that they were in and they don't have the ability to think outside the box for a new vertical. There's so many things out there and there's a few times where I'm like, how in the world did that person get that job? But then I realized, oh, okay, it's just probably the person that interviewed them doesn't know what questions to ask for fraud. And that doesn't mean that I'm saying that as like a judgy way. It's more because I'm very fortunate to know a lot of people in this space and observe a lot of things. And I, I think to give everyone credit that they believe that they are experts as well. And I think that we all are experts in different ways. It's just that we're not on an even playing field. You might meet one fraud manager that's been in the industry for four years and another fraud manager that's been in the industry for four years, and they'll have completely different skill set, completely different knowledge. And I think that's okay and that that's good. But I also think that it's important that we always continue to learn. Whenever I have seen people in this space claim that they know everything or that they have a best-in-class fraud team or best-in-class fraud tool that's their own internally or all of those different things, that's usually the point when Brett starts telling me that that company is being hit with fraud like crazy and it's going through. No joke. That's happened more than a few times. And that's because I think that once we decide that we don't have anything more to learn in this space, that's when we stop learning and when the the fraudsters can start finding different areas to go through or different vulnerabilities because you're not looking at every single angle. I think that we have to say, yeah, I've been climbing this mountain for a long time and I've gotten a lot of really good experience. That doesn't mean that we're at the top of the mountain and we can relax. It just means that we've acquired a lot of skills along the way. And I got news for you. If you really want to be at the top of the mountain in fraud, <laughs> yeah, you're in the wrong industry. I think I know a lot about a lot, but I also know that there's a lot more for me to learn. And I go into conferences like that wanting to learn from people. And I think that that's why it's so fulfilling. 
So it's kind of hard to be really detailed in all the things I learned and talked about with people because I don't want to out anyone. So that's really challenging and there's a lot of specifics in a lot of the conversations that were discussed. So that's why I'm focusing on the general stuff. What I do want to say is just like Brett and I said at the beginning uh, or during the episode a few weeks ago about collaboration. I believe that going to these in-person events is the single best thing you can do for your career. I know that there are companies that don't believe that and or don't put money in your budget to reflect that. I get that. I've definitely offered in the past and I will continue to offer to be of help. There's been some ways that I've been able to help merchants better explain this to their bosses about, you know, the value that they'll get out of it. I cannot tell you guys how much conferences and networking with my peers outside of my business helped my career. If you listened to the episode I did a few months ago about my career path, I think that that was extremely clear. While I am not on staff for MRC anymore, I still hold the organization in high regard and uh, told the new CEO as much last week. And I was grateful that they they welcomed me back. I mean, there were no burned bridges, I don't believe. It was just time for me to leave. And a lot of it was on me. I just, I worked too hard and I, um, I cared too much. And I burnt myself out pretty bad. And to the point where I still have chronic pain issues. So that was on me. I don't blame them for that. Was the organization going through a bumpy patch during that time? Yeah, but what organization doesn't? That was aside from anything else. The reason I'm saying all that is because when I looked back, when I looked at the conference last week and I looked back on my career, I could not have even close to the career I have now if it weren't for that organization. And I believe very similar with CMP. It was just later in my career after I had had, because CMP was created after MRC. MRC is about to have their 20th anniversary. I was talking to a couple of the founders last week, and it's crazy to think about. And I was involved in the MRC a little bit before I attended my first conference, but I I basically had to pay for half of my way there to go to my very first conference, but it was worth it. So, I mean, I was involved before, so I knew a lot of the people, but I just hadn't been to a conference until 2009. I had a lot of sentimental moments, and I'm sure if you looked at my LinkedIn the last few weeks, you can tell that March is a sentimental month for me. Um, I didn't even share the fact that it's been 11 years. Last week, it was 11 years that I moved to Seattle to be with my then long distance boyfriend. And we've now been married nine years and been together 13. So March is just a sentimental month for me. But a lot of it has to do with MRC event being that in March as well. 10 years ago this year, I attended my first frog conference nine years ago this year. And this month I spoke at my very first conference eight years ago this month. I did my very first training session where I I worked with another merchant at the time to create a four-hour training session on chargebacks. And it was so popular, it got done twice. And it's still been repurposed for the last several years. So lots and lots of sentiment. But really, I looked back and was like, wow, if this organization wouldn't have been created, think of how many of us wouldn't have the careers that we have. But even if you can't go to MRC, because I know it's expensive, you know, if you can't be a a member all year or whatever it is, like there are are other opportunities. There's obviously there's CMP Expo. There's the Merchant Acquirers Group, which I attended their event three 
weeks ago. I said the MAG conference. I guess a few of you heard the MAGA conference. Let me just assure you, it was definitely the MAG conference. (laughs) Merchant Acquirers Group. They were traditionally started by gas stations and in-person companies. There are a lot more online channels and online issues being discussed. I would say that primarily a lot of the attendees were companies that were retailers or weren't digital first companies. So they weren't just online companies, though there were a couple. That was a great, well-done conference as well. And then the other one that I know of is Payments Ed Group. Our payments ed forum, I guess. And that's in August. Also, it will be in San Francisco this year. The way I look at it, you can go to learn about fraud and payments in May in San Francisco and see springtime there. And then you can go in August and see summer and learn um, mostly about payments and a little bit of fraud. So those are the four conferences that I know the most online merchants attend. There are definitely other ones. There are regional events. I will be working on some regional events with a company after the CMP Expo. So I'm excited about that. Get engaged, guys. I just can't tell you how good it's going to be for you, for your career, for everything. And I hope that those of you that I met last week, that this was your first, you know, MRC or, you know, even your several that you agree with me. And I know you do because we've talked about it. You know, just keep being engaged. It's really important, especially as those of you who are trying to dig themselves out of your inbox for missing a week. It was worth it. It was important, even if that means that, uh, you know, your liver is a little sore. I actually was really good this year. I have gone to my share of parties at nightclubs in Vegas for this event. And so I was like, I'm going to be in my bed by 11 o'clock, which never happened. I was very graciously asked if I wanted to go on a helicopter ride by a good friend of mine who has been in the industry a long time. He used to work for StubHub and now he works for MasterCard and New Data. And he sent me a text about an hour before the shuttle left and was like, you want to go on a helicopter? I'm like, uh, sure. <laughs> and it was awesome because usually because I'm, I don't work for like a big merchant name, I don't usually get invited to those and I don't expect to. But it was very sweet of them that they had somebody drop out and they invited me. And uh, it was something that I was terrified to do. But I think because I didn't want to be a wuss in front of a bunch of people that either listen to the podcast or have known me for a long time, I just sucked it up. I mean, the champagne right before it didn't hurt. <laughs> and there's a few ladies that know that we cheers and then chugged it so it would work a little faster right before we got in the helicopter that helped and it was really fun and that was really nice it was like the only main fun event that I did all week to me talking about fraud and payments is fun so I'm just not your usual person I know okay so I have once again talked for almost an hour all by myself I believe that Brett will be on the podcast next week. If not, I'll be interviewing somebody. I have a few fun interviews lined up. And if you're a merchant and you want to be interviewed on the podcast, let me know. We would love to highlight you and your experience on here. Um, I know a lot of your companies won't let you, but those of you that will, I'm happy to talk about it. As far as providers being interviewed, we currently are just being really selective about who we are selecting so that this doesn't turn into a sales podcast like so many of them out there. So with all of that said, I am going to wrap up. I would love to hear from you guys as always. We really appreciate you guys listening and hanging in there with us when both of us aren't on the podcast and all of that. We always have more things to talk about. So we hope that you subscribe so you're alerted to the next episode of the online broadcast. Please tell your friends and rate and review where you can. Share those posts this week. Every time you share something, it gets counted as an entry. And we have other things coming up as well. But that was one that we wanted to do to kick off. And we really appreciate it. 
We want to hear, like I've said, I think like three times on this episode, I want to hear what you want to know. If there's ever a question you don't have the answer to, let me know. I might answer for you right away or I might answer it on the podcast. Both have happened. But you can find us on Facebook, on our website, www.onlinefrogcast.com or find us individually on LinkedIn. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure. Oh, 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 o